Welcome to Institutionalized, Living After Deconstruction and Promoting Mental Health. I'm your host, Josh T, and each week we'll dive into interesting topics and bring you stories from fellow travelers on the road of life. In this raw, accepting, and sometimes hilarious space, we'll ask the questions we weren't allowed to ask, challenge norms that keep us stuck in the past, and actively listen to perspectives that might be different than our own. And if we listen carefully enough, we might learn something that helps us love ourselves and our neighbors better. This is Institutionalized, Living After Deconstruction. Hey, welcome to Institutionalized. Today we get into part two of Sherry Bothwell's story. But before we do, I wanted to give a quick content warning as we get into some really heartbreaking things, uh, such as child abuse, and it's a heavy episode. So if you're not feeling it today, just skip it and wait for the next one or go back and listen to one you haven't listened to. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give a rating, subscribe, a review. It helps a whole lot. So without any further ado, this is Sherry Bothwell. Hey, welcome to Institutionalized, and uh, I'm here with Sherry Bothwell for part two of our interview. Um, Sherry, how are you today? I'm good. I feel a little bit nervous because this is going to be heavier stuff yeah. that I really honestly haven't talked a lot about before. Mm. Well, that, you know, that's something that um, that I want to do with this podcast is is listen and allow people that are listening to be able to hear stories that, you know, under, where you under, they understand where you're coming from and that maybe we can actually, you know, change some things that have hurt people and, and enabled abuse throughout churches and, you know, the Christian environment and stuff like that. So let's, let's continue with your story. Like, I, I know that you left churches and you were trying really hard to hold on to your faith that you talked about last time, but what was the tipping points and experiences that you had that really led you away and led you to want to fight for these people that have been abused and yourself and myself and, and all this mm -hmm. stuff. So, yeah, it, it was really my own experience with actually acknowledging that what I had experienced was abuse, mm -hmm. even though I didn't have any marks <laughs> yeah. and none of it could be proven. I had no proof, but I knew and my body knew that the psychological and emotional and spiritual abuse was real. Mm -hmm. um, and my body did manifest the evidence of that. Um, but that's not credible within Christian circles. It's imaginary. It's always a spiritual issue. If you have issues, it's you're not yeah. having enough faith or you're not trusting enough. It's always blaming and shaming the victim yeah. or the survivor. Um, but after I, after my husband resigned from the church due to all of the men wanting me to be subservient and in subjection to them and my husband, um, I was offered a job out of the blue from a Christian organization that has a two-year program for addicts and they had reached out saying that they had been watching um what i had been doing as far as advocacy and activist work online and how effective it had been and how many people i had helped and 
they wanted to offer me a job and I wasn't looking for a job at that time. Mm. Um, I had never had a job outside of my home in all of my life. I hadn't been allowed, but now my husband was no longer employed. Um, and so I just saw it as God providing <laughs> at the time, because again, I was still all in. And so after a couple of days and talking it over with my family, I decided I was willing to, to try. I felt like imposter syndrome was very real. I didn't feel I had, I had the qualifications for these things, but they assured me that I did and that my training would be ongoing and they would pay for it within the program. So hmm. that was awesome. That is awesome. And again, my job description there was confrontation and conflict resolution because they believed that you had to be, you had to be able to be very direct with people and tell them uncomfortable things um, when you're trying to help them through the addiction process. And I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot what I wouldn't do um, because again, it was a Christian organization, but my husband and I, again, had come out of this, what we believed was an abusive sect of Christianity. And these people were a lot more liberal and we thought, well, maybe this is the right direction that we need to go. And we wanted to have a more grace-based, grace-filled approach. And that's exactly what they represented. And so, you know, I just thought, this is going to be the perfect fit. Um, it wasn't. <laughs> it was as I was beginning to discover just a little bit down further on the liberal side of the scale of abuse. Um, because abuse really is a spectrum within the Christian belief system. And so... But again, going into that, I didn't know that. And I love people. I love working with people. I love helping people and being one-on-one -on -one with them seemed like a dream come true. So I started out and I started out with the Women and Children's Center because we had several pregnant moms and a lot of the people that were working there weren't com comfortable with people who were about to go into labor. And one lady in particular was pregnant with twins. And um, I had worked for a midwife and I wasn't afraid of birth or anything like that. So yeah, I was all in and I fell in love with these ladies immediately. Whenever mm. I think of it, tears just spring to my eyes because I loved them so much and I loved their babies so much. And so while I was, um, hired to help the mothers, I ended up kind of being a jack of all trades within the organization, especially within the women's facilities, both single and mothers with children. And so during the days, often I worked in childcare. So I got that one-on-one -on -one experience with abuse to children because a lot of times we had, it was like a homeless shelter. So we yeah. had people coming through temporarily who would bring their kids and then they would leave. Um, but these children, many of them were like four and five years old and couldn't speak. Oh, and no. you could just tell that they were traumatized. They, mm -hmm. they, it was just trauma. They, they couldn't accept human safe, human touch or human love. Like they just, they could not do it. 
Sorry, I have to take some deep breaths through this because it is it is really hard for me to talk about this. Yeah. Um, because I feel like it, they're not my stories to tell, but I have to tell these stories, and it's not like anybody's going to know who I'm talking about, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I just have to do it. But these stories are so sacred to me that it is it is hard for me to put them out there, knowing that a lot of Christians are going to take it wrong and and misunderstand and. Yeah. St still not understand despite all of the evidence and the proof that I'm trying to share as to why I am where I am but this one little boy in particular he was four years old his mom had just come through just for a couple of days she was I believe 15 when she had him so she was um, still a teenager and didn't know the first thing about having kids but she was an addict and had been since she was like 10 years old mm. And in working with her, I found out that she had been sexually abused herself for like her entire life. Um, her parents were Christians in full-time ministry in a church, and she had been abused spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, sexually, in absolutely every way. And um, she didn't want to come to a Christian-based organization because she couldn't believe in a God who would allow those things to happen to her. Yeah. Um, and so here is this child, because you're, your brain stops growing in some ways where the trauma began in your life. Mm. So in many ways, you're still the age of however old you were when the trauma happened. And when it comes to being able to take care of another person and loving other people, and you have that ability of like a four or five year old, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a recipe for disaster. And so, of course, she's responding to her kid as if she's younger than him when he misbehaves. And it's just this vicious cycle of abuse. Um, and so I'm trying to love her. I'm trying to love him separately and teach her how to love him. You know, and it was just, I only had a couple of days with them, just long enough to learn their story before they left. Um, I was never really able to connect with the little boy at all because he just couldn't trust people. Yeah. And like, I think he knew that he couldn't get comfortable because he was just going to end up having to leave anyway. So anyhow... That, that's when I first saw this pattern that that seemed to be emerging of addiction. And I started to really delve into studying addiction because I hadn't done it up to that point. It had never been an issue in my life or anybody's that I knew. And so I realized that the gateway drug for any addiction is lack of human connection, mm. lack of meaningful human connection. So that gave me the springboard that I needed to come from in order to really be able to help these women. And honestly, I don't feel that I helped them at all. I feel like they helped me a lot um, to understand the nuance that is life. But it was really their stories that gripped me. The lady that was pregnant with twins, um, she shared her story with me and she was so horrifically abused as a kid 
that I can't even share the things that happened to her. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't do it. Mm. Um, <laughs> out of respect for her and love for her, I can't do it. But um, I can totally understand why she was an addict. Um, and I really think that she she's probably one of my biggest heroes because of everything that she had been through and how intelligent she was, how capable she was in spite of everything that she mm. had been through. She really was a phenomenal mother despite her own abuse and despite losing custody of her kids, you know, because um, she had older ones that she had lost custody of. But these kids would come and visit her and they were the most incredible kids, just like their mom, like super smart in like the 99th percentile. It's they, they were all of them were just amazing. And I'm listening to her and I'm thinking, you know, if I had been through anything near what you had been through, I, addiction would be the least of my worries. <laughs> you know, like I would probably not even still be here. Um, and so she started opening up to me and sharing her stories of, you know, um, suicidal ideation and her attempts to commit suicide and how she was a Christian because it was the only thing that made sense. And she felt like God was the one who, who prevented her from committing suicide and just a belief in God was helping her to be a good parent because she was beginning to see what a loving parent was like. Mm. And this was something that I couldn't relate to because my parents were amazing. Yeah. You know, I came from the most amazing, loving family. And so like God was not a loving parent compared to my experience, you know, so I couldn't relate to that. And so many people talk about God coming along, reparenting them and helping them to feel and know that they're loved and understood and all of these things. And, and again, I was a believer at the time. And so I was all about that. Like, yes, this makes sense. But her beliefs did not help her, you know, and because she had been a Christian for many years yeah. and she was, homeless. She had lost a multi-million dollar business that she and her partner, her abusive partner had started from scratch. Um, she had lost her kids. She had had twins now, you know, yeah. <laughs> that she was not able to take care of. And all I could think of was how can you look at your life and think this is the result of a loving God. And she said, and I will never forget it. It is not God's fault that I am where I am. It's mine. Oh. And I said, in no way, in no way is anything that has happened to you your fault. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I I can't. It's just like, no, I've made so many bad decisions and he has gotten me out of them all. Like, even me being here is a gift from him. And I'm just like looking at her, like inside dying like I yeah. felt like I felt like my heart was breaking into a million pieces because all I could think about was God <laughs> I have given my life to you I have loved you I have lived for you I have dedicated every breath of my body and every beat of my heart to you to loving you to serving you 
um, faithfully and praying without ceasing and reading my Bible faithfully and studying my Bible in depth and well to, to make myself approved to you. You know, I, I pray every day that I would be to the praise of your glory and that I would do nothing to bring shame to your name. If you are real and if you are the loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, just and holy God that I believe you to be, how yeah. could you not protect her and prevent this from happening? You know? Yeah. And I realized, I realized early on, and it was hard for me to accept this. And so I stayed for a year and a half until my body literally gave up and said it couldn't take anymore. But that early on, I realized that the God that I had lived for and loved and served sacrificially and completely selflessly for all of my life up to that point in his sovereignty had knowingly and willfully allowed these precious souls to be conceived to people that he knew would abort, abuse, neglect, sexually assault, traffic, and murder them. And that just stopped me in my tracks. I'm yeah. like, that's like saying that if you believe in, a, in, in an all-knowing God who is also all-powerful, that's like saying that he's standing by watching as every woman is sexually assaulted, as every child is sexually assaulted, and it is his will for them. And I was dealing with these kids and other kids that I couldn't reach that I knew of who were born into these abusive situations through no fault or consent of their own. Mm -hmm. um, only to live horrific lives and die horrific deaths, never having known safe love or safe human touch. And those who were unfortunate enough to survive it lived the whole of their lives, never being able to accept it. Like even this mother of the twins had a hard time trusting. Like she couldn't ask for help because she'd always been punished as a child whenever she asked for help. Um, and so just being there was traumatizing to her because she realized that she was relying on people to help her that she felt like she couldn't trust. Yeah. And she was just wondering when the other shoe was going to fall and how she was going to be punished and how it was going to backfire on her. I, I just would hold those precious tiny babies in my arms. And like, I felt like I could see their future because God had failed her so much. I was, I, I just knew that they were going to end up in the foster system, you know? And I'm like, she's an amazing mom. She's an incredible person, but she doesn't have control over so many of her physiological responses to the trauma that she has endured, you know, yeah. she at this point cannot take care of herself. You know, how can she be expected to take care of two babies? One is more than she could handle. And she had two. Um, and I was like, what an evil twist of fate, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that, that she would be encumbered despite her efforts not to be, to get pregnant with not one, but two babies that she was in all likelihood going to lose, you know, and the, the foster care system in our state is broken beyond repair. I saw in my short stint there 
more kids taken from safe parents and given to unsafe parents or removed from relatively good situations and put in horrifically abusive ones, mm. like more than I can even handle. I am so against adoption, whereas before I I would take all the babies, you know, yeah. and I still would take all the babies because I love all the babies. I love kids and they're they're literally still my life. But um, I know the trauma that is adoption hmm. from firsthand experience. I have people in my family who are adopted who have had the most horrific experiences, despite the, the well-meaning people who have adopted them. But, you know, these women had gone through the foster care system themselves and knew the hell that it was. They had experienced it and they were risking their children having to experience it, mm. you know, and I know that that fear played a huge role in a lot of it. Um, a lot of the really bad decisions that she made um, were trying to keep her kids out of the foster care system. It's interesting how. And I, I think we might have talked about this before, and I know I've talked about it a little bit, but how most, the vast majority of people's sins, especially what we would call sins or trauma responses, they're old yes. self-protection defense mechanisms that maybe don't work as yeah. an ad adult anymore. And that kind of flips mm -hmm. that whole concept of sin on its head, especially when you see it firsthand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like she was just one of the most giving, selfless, kind-hearted people, you know, and yeah. I, I I knew the I knew who she was. I saw the real I, I see people's highest self, you know, <laughs> when I talk to people, I just I don't know. That's just how I see them. I am probably very naive when it comes to that. And probably one of my biggest faults is that I tend to think that everybody is as good hearted as I am and they're not. Um but she is, she was, yeah. she is. And um, again, putting myself in her shoes, I couldn't imagine having handled it better in many ways than she did, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but there were so many examples. I think in my short time there, I probably met, I, I don't know, it probably was around 50 women or so that kind of filtered through that I met and I got to hear their stories. And I, it was such a privilege to meet them and to walk with them for however long that I had with them. It, they're just the most incredible women um, in all, all of them. Like, I can't think of a single solitary one that I could look at and say, you know, your lot in life, where you are in life is a result, is a direct result of your bad choices. And I, I saw a, a, a meme on Facebook the other day that said something about privilege is looking at people and saying that they made bad choices when you had good options yeah, or something to that yeah. effect, you know, like they didn't have good options. They didn't have good things to choose from. They were constantly between a rock and a hard place. And most of their abuse started when they were kids. And when you think of a kid who is abused, what choice do they have? They have no voice. They they have only their caretakers in their lives that they can rely on to get their needs met. Who is going to believe them when they come out and say, 
that they have been touched inappropriately or they have been abused or they can't, they don't even have the vocabulary or the mental, the cognitive um, ability to communicate what, or know, even know what trauma is. You know what I mean? Absolutely. A lot of times it'll, (laughs) it will devolve, you know, the people not believing them keeps everybody silent. You know what I mean? Like, I know that me as a child, um, when I was abused by a basketball coach, when I was in middle school, it took me 30 years to say it out loud, 30 years, you know, and I was watching this movie or this show. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's pretty rough on uh, Netflix the other day, American nightmare and how this Mm -hmm. woman got kidnapped and then like literally got kidnapped and sexually assaulted. And then they let her go. The guy let her go and no one believed her. They accused her of being Mm -hmm. gone girl from the movie that came out the year before. It is incredible. And I can't imagine how many women just aren't believed in all this stuff. And so like, what are your options? You know? Exactly. And, and that was this, the, the twins mom, that was her reality. Like Mm. she couldn't go to anybody because first of all, she loved her abusers very, very, very much. Um, And she didn't want to get them in trouble, you know, because she didn't, she didn't want to be in trouble and she didn't want to lose them. Like they were the only family she, she knew. Um, And so even to this day, they've never faced accountability for what they've done. And that is a very common thing. But I still have women in their 50s and 60s reaching out to me and saying, I just realized that I was sexually abused or physically abused as a kid. And like my brain didn't even let me remember it. These are repressed yeah. memories that people have. It takes decades for the body and the brain to feel safe enough for them to come to the surface. So these um, statutes of limitations on abuse are the most horrific laws I agree that, that I know of. A hundred percent. Like that is the statute of limitations law when it comes to sexual abuse, especially child abuse. Um, yes. I was talking to a, a, a man who was a pastor the other day. He said he still to this day doesn't remember this one block of time in his life. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I yeah. was just floored. You know, yeah. like, don't, don't do, don't, don't do ketamine therapy. Cause you'll remember <laughs> that was, that was kind of my <laughs> yeah. experience. like, a, oh, I don't want to remember this, but my, you know, you yes. need to. so what was that? How, how hard was that? Cause I know vicarious trauma and is, is a thing like when you're around yes. it all the time, like <laughs> how, yeah. how, how hard was that? And what, what are you, what do you do to, to kind of deal mm-hmm. with all that? Well, they did have a lot in the training there to help you cope and to be able to recognize uh, trauma responses in other people as well as yourself. Mm -hmm. So you could deescalate the situation. So you could deescalate yourself, regulate yourself, regulate other people. Um, So they were very good about mental health, um, recommending it, helping you pay for it, um, and even telling you don't go to a therapist who isn't in therapy, <laughs> you know, that type yeah. of thing. They, re- they were very knowledgeable about that. And I did learn a lot. However, when you have unresolved trauma, 
there is a brain and body disconnect. And so you might know how to deal with these things psychologically, but your brain and your body aren't in sync. And so you will begin to feel the trauma and your body will tell your brain will tell you, Oh, this is trauma. You need to regulate, you need to deescalate. Um, but being able to connect it, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but you're not able, you're just not able to do it until yeah. you resolve that trauma. I can completely relate. That on that. Yeah. And, and it's hard to explain unless you've lived through it, but sometimes my body will sense trauma long before my brain does. I'm like, I'm mm. completely safe. I'm fine. I'm handling this well. And I'll suddenly start feeling my heart racing or my stomach starts hurting or I start to get a headache or I start to feel nauseous. And I'm like, this feels like a trauma response, but nothing has happened, you know? And then I'll realize later, oh yeah, my body was triggered by this very similar response that I was safe in that moment. But and when it happened before, I wasn't safe. Yeah. And my body recognized that. And so it preemptively was trying to protect me. But also this can happen after the fact. So like you can be in a situation where you don't feel safe and your amygdala kicks into gear and you're like, fight, flee, fawn, friend, mm-hmm. whatever you have to do to survive this situation. And then when you're safe, your body just shuts down. you know so it can happen before or after but the the key is that there's that break between the brain and body connection and so that's what i was dealing with is i was dealing with these ladies not realizing that that's also what they were dealing with so i thought i'm doing great i feel fine i love my job like i never had trouble getting up in the morning and going to work i felt like it was the, the perfect job job for me in absolutely every respect. Um, and I thought I was doing okay until March of 2021. Um, I, it was in, we were still de- dealing with COVID and it was a group community living situation. So it was really hard when you have all of these women who are addicts, who are quarantined in one building mm. <laughs> and as staff, we were having to navigate this. We had a lot of people who were incredibly afraid of COVID and other people who didn't care at all and trying to get them to cohabitate together and to follow the rules and to enforce the rules and to make up the rules, you know, (laughs) to make it all work. It was just a lot. And it was around the time that, um, I don't, it was like the second bout of vaccines had come out and a bunch of the women were getting the vaccine and I was not able to take the vaccine um, because of my Lyme disease and my autoimmune stuff. I'm, I, I can't take vaccines. I have uh, um, anaphylactic reactions to them. Mm. And so I thought, oh, I'll be fine. Well, these are live vaccines. And so I got COVID apparently from the people who had the vaccines because nobody had COVID at that time. Mm-hmm. But the really bizarre thing was that I was tested for COVID weekly, sometimes a couple times a week for over a month, and I never tested positive for it. But I have I had absolutely all of the symptoms of it. um, And that's what everybody told me. That's the only thing I could have had. But I ended up with a fever, a low grade fever between 
99 and like 102 for 12 days that I could not get over. And so I wasn't able to work. Um, And we were very short staffed due to COVID. So I was feeling terrible for my coworkers. I was feeling terrible for the ladies because I was one of the few ladies that they felt that everybody kind of felt comfortable with, um, probably because I'm a pushover. Like I felt like my brain and my body just shut down and I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't be the one that everybody was relying on from my coworkers to all of the different ladies, to my family, myself. I, I couldn't rely on myself, mm. you know, like yeah. I wasn't taking care of me, all of these things. And so my, my body just shut down. My brain couldn't take it anymore. My body couldn't take it anymore. And I ended up with long COVID, long hauler syndrome. And I was out of work until I think the the next November. And even then I probably shouldn't have gone to work. I just did because I had to, but um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely horrific. And after I had been away for about four days, I realized that I couldn't go back. Mm. Just driving in that section of town, I would have a trauma response and I would just start, my whole body would start shaking uncontrollably. I would feel like I was going to faint and I would be stuck there until somebody could come and pick me and my car up and bring me back home. Mm. (laughs) And I dealt with that for a long, long time. Just the most bizarre trauma responses that I couldn't figure out, which were also due to COVID trying to differentiate between the two is almost impossible well it's almost like that autoimmune response from covid kind of like rewires your central nervous system i know like that was your story mirrors like i feel like you're a mirror right now when you're talking about long covid like when i got it dealing with insomnia when i went back to work i ended up taking a two-week mental health leave because i was just like you know what I mean? Like there was just so, and then every single trauma that I've ever been to, like came rising up and was playing on a loop and just my body would be on fire. And I was working at this Christian school and I couldn't figure out why they were making me go to chapel. And I would walk into the chapel and then I would walk out and go throw up. Like I Mm -hmm. threw up every single day for about four Mm -hmm. weeks during that first time, someone would say a public prayer and my skin is just on fire and and I'm I'm trying to figure out what this is. And then when I talk about spiritual abuse, it's not, or, or just like the trauma that kind of came from the heavy handed abuse. Like it's not believed, you know what I mean? Right. After seeing all this and seeing all this suffering and that kind of the injustice of it all. And a lot of these people were just in terrible situations that they had no control over. Uh, what was mm-hmm. the catalyst for you walking away from your faith altogether? Well, in addition to kind of, kind of finally figuring out that secondary trauma is a thing and yeah. that, <laughs> that in addition to my own trauma, I was, I was an empath who was taking on the trauma of other people. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I realized that truth um, when I met another family that came through the center. The mom had eight children. She had been raised in a Christian home. She also was abused um, her entire life. They were in church and she had been a Christian. She'd known nothing else. She was basically born into the church, into Christianity. 
and um, her kids were actually fairly well adjusted, especially the older ones. They were with her parents and they were doing well in school. They were good kids. Um, but the younger ones had a lot more anger issues. And I was realizing, <clears throat> excuse me, I was realizing that it was because um, she had gotten with a very abusive partner mm. at a certain stage. And that is when her abuse really began as far as um, marital uh, domestic abuse, but also that trickled down to the kids. Um, but she was very op open about the fact that she had also been abusive to her kids and stuff. And she was really looking for some intervention and people to help her to learn how to be a good parent and to overcome her addictions and her own issues and stuff with abuse. Kind of break the and cycle. Yes. Yeah. She was, again, another amazing, incredible person. Really, truly a great mom. She was one of the women who had also had a baby at the center. So she had a newborn um, and she was really hoping that with this last one, she could do it right, you know, mm -hmm. and that she could give her the best life possible. And so it's a two-year program. It's difficult for anybody to stay in a community living situation for two years, let alone somebody with eight children. <laughs> it's not just you that has to obey all the rules and live in close quarters with so many other people. Um, it was a very difficult situation for her. And so she stayed a lot longer than I expected her to. She was there for about three months and the center helps people get jobs and find homes and get reestablished and, you know, get back on their feet. And she felt at three months that she had been given the tools that she needed to be able to go out and be a single mom and not go back to her abusive spouse. Um, and so she decided to leave. In the meantime, my job had been switched almost completely full-time to, to just working with the kids because I loved them so much. So I remember my very first day there, her kids were there and her middle son, who is seven years old, running up to the door and saying, hi, you must be Sherry. We, we have been waiting for you to get here all day. <laughs> and that little boy from that moment on just completely stole my heart. Um, he was helping me get supper ready in the kitchen, helping me put all the dishes away. And then after supper, we played games together. And that was kind of just our life. As soon as I walked in the door, we were all just thrilled to see each other. We were going to get all of our chores out of the way and then we we're going to have fun together, you know. And so then when I was with them all day, we got to do that all day. And that connection was just all the stronger. I loved those kids more than life itself. And I would have done anything to protect them. And they knew that. Yeah. Well, when their mom decided to leave, they to say they were terrified is the understatement of millennia. Um, they did not want to go. And this little boy, um, they were loading up the back of her abusive ex's truck because he, of course, was the only one available to transport her and all of the kids and all of mm -hmm. their stuff to their new home. And he wasn't even supposed to know that they were leaving the center. 
um, part of my job, my job description was to lie to keep our clients safe. And so like I had done everything within my power to keep him away from them, to keep them safe from him. And then here he was, and we had no control over it. And she, knowing who he was, knowing all of this was allowing him to take her to the new house where he wasn't even supposed to know anything about, you know, like, oh, it just, it was such a bad situation. And it's like watching a, a wreck in slow motion, Yeah, you know, like you just, there, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it was about time for the kids to leave. And I had talked to them and we had prayed together and um like as soon as we found out about this was which i think they only found out the day before so it was like a shock everything was just a shock to these kids um but when it was time for them to leave this little boy came running full speed to me threw himself on me almost knocked me over grabbed me and was sobbing uncontrollably begging me to take him home with me he said, please, Sherry, please don't let, don't make me go back with him. Please mm. don't make me go back with him. And up to this point, we knew that the kids had been abused, but there had been no, the kids had never mentioned any type of sexual abuse or anything. I mean, it had been bad, but it was mostly the mom was being abused and the kids just kind of got the residual from her, her having to deal with that. But I told him, I said, you know, God loves you and God sees you and he's in control. And we have been working on learning how to have faith and to trust him. So you have to trust that God is going to take care of you. He is, he's going to do what nobody else can do because he loves you so, so, so much. And so I took him in my arms and I prayed over him again. And I just begged God to take care of him and to help him know that, that he was going with him and that he was going to keep him safe. And that calmed him down. But um, a few minutes later, he fell at my feet crying again. He was like, Sherry, please don't make me go. Please, please don't make me go back with him. And the other kids, of course, are crying watching him. But, you know, he's the one begging me to do something, anything. Yeah. I'm like, honey, there is legally nothing I can do. I can't take you with me. I can't interfere. Like, there, my hands are completely tied. So I have to trust God, too with the situation. I have to entrust my heart outside my body in the form of you to God. So, you know, um, God's going to take care of both of us. It's going to be okay. I found out that after I had left the center about a year later, they had come back and I found out that the abuse had escalated and he was sexually abusing the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, as a means of getting to the mom, to bothering her, to abusing her, to torturing her. And they were back and the kids had restraining orders against him and she had a restraining order against him, but it was just a piece of paper. The guy was still out walking free, mm. you know, no cares in the world, nothing. And I was home in bed. <laughs> and that was when I said, I'm done. I am so done. I told that little boy that this would not happen, that this could not happen, that God was going to take care of him, that he was going to do what I couldn't do. And I would have done anything within my power to protect him 
and to prevent anything bad from happening, happening to him. And God only did nothing for him when he was allegedly the only one with the power and the knowledge who could have, he did nothing to help me help them. Mm. He did nothing to help me prevent this from happening when I would have done anything. I would have moved heaven and earth to keep these kids safe. And I think that was really when I got super duper sick because my entire world just crumbled. <laughs> everything, everything that I thought I knew, everything that I thought I believed in was ashes at my feet. And I was so angry. I was angry for months. Like I could not even see straight. I was so mad at all of the years that I had lost to this lie of a belief system to of, of all of the things that I had sacrificed and missed out on. You know, it was like, it was all just suddenly dumping on me what my life could have been if I had not been subjected to this cult, you know, forced to live within the constraints of a lie, something that wasn't even real. I realized that my marriage was a disaster, that I had never even really allowed myself to enjoy sex. Um, I, I felt like I was broken in so many ways, but but that one part was such a huge thing in my life because my husband was everything to me. And I felt like our relationship just was not thriving because sex had always been for him and about him. And my needs mm. had never been even acknowledged, not even by myself. You know, I wasn't yeah. allowed to be that kind of a being. And so like I was angry. <laughs> at all of the years that my husband and I could have been happily enjoying marriage and being together that that I was robbed of because of this blood death sex cult that is so obsessed with sex and putting you know constraints on it and prohibiting certain things and making it forbidden you know before marriage and then a duty afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, to where you don't have a choice either way. And just making it this, this bondage, you know, so that was, a, honestly, I was surprised at what a huge aspect of my anger, the sexuality thing was, it was yeah. just, I couldn't even wrap my brain, my brain around it. But um, yeah, I, I was angry and I just started sharing my story and my husband and everybody in my life, they were all Christians and they were like, whoa, Sherry has gone off the deep end because I would do Facebook lives and share the stupid shit that I believed as a Christian that yeah. I could not even believe that I believed. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? You know? why is that stupid? Why, why are you talking about how, how stupid you were for believing that God flooded the earth? And I'm like, I can't even articulate it to you. You know, it's so dumb. It could not have happened like there, you know? And so I would actually do these videos where I would delineate every single reason why the flood was an absolute impossibility and just completely preposterous. Um, I, and you know, I just kept doing this and 
people in my life were just like, wow, you are so angry. You were so bitter. You were so resentful that you are leading everybody astray. You are going to be held accountable for all of these people going to hell. You need to get a grip. You need to not talk about things while you're angry. I'm like, I, I was so tired of people telling me not to be angry that it made me even more angry. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you've been told I to shut up abs- enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. I have every right to be angry. I would not be human if I was not angry about this because I started to kind of feel guilty. Like this, something is wrong with me. I need to rein this in because I've never been an angry person ever. Yeah. You know, this was completely foreign to me. Um, but it was so cathartic, like just being angry felt so good and felt so right. And it was such a relief. Like I felt myself healing as I was letting that energy, yeah. you know, as I was just feeling these emotions and allowing myself to feel them. And I had letting it leave your body coming at me. Yeah. They were telling me, no, don't, no, don't, no, don't. That's, that's bad. That's bad. You know? And I'm like, and then everybody was saying, oh, you just need to forgive. You need to forgive. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> I cannot forgive this. I This is unforgivable. There is no justice for this. Not in this life and certainly not in a hypothetical one to come, you know? And so I have all these people tone policing me. And instead of validating me and going after people who are you know, perpetrating the abuse and the hurt and the harm, they're coming after me for exposing it and, and exposing the abusive beliefs and blaming me and shaming me for it. When I'm the one who's trying to do something about it for myself and for other people to see them set free, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to be in bondage to a lie. And so the more pushback I got, again, it was just like, this was validation and confirmation of everything. Every step of the way, I was getting that validation and confirmation that I was on the right track because the pushback just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I knew that I was doing nothing wrong. You know, my heart was right. My motives were right. <laughs> um Everything that I was saying and doing was a result of the love that I have for other people. And so, yeah, it was this tone policing, people telling me that I couldn't feel. Like, I realized that those emotions were the most understandable, natural, normal, healthy, (laughs) justified responses to everything that I had been through. And just being able to give myself permission not to forgive and give myself permission to be angry was, I started to get better. You know, Mm. it was just like, emotion is just energy in motion. It's meant to, to motivate you to do something about it about the hurt and the harm and the abuse that you're experiencing, not only for yourself to protect yourself, but to protect other people too. Yeah. That's why our emotions are a gift. They're not immoral. Um, they're all moral. They are, they just are. They're meant to tell us things, to send us messages. And so I just really started with telling people that, sharing that. And then as I was realizing other things that I was learning to do to cope with the long COVID, to cope with my trauma, I would share that with people too. And it was just amazing that um, my reach 
<laughs> exploded exponentially once I got out of the cult because there were literally seas and seas and seas of people that had been hurt and harmed as I, I was who were just basically as lost in at sea as I was. Yeah. And when you find each other, this this bond, this community just naturally naturally springs out of it. And um yeah, it's been it's it's been quite the journey. <laughs> but as I said before, it's so totally worth it. Um I would change things if I could, absolutely, but um obviously I can't do that. So I'm making the most of my life and what's left of it. <laughs> kind of the age that we're at it's almost like the second half of life start you know what i mean and yes. you can hit you can yeah. hit almost a, a reset button with your full authenticity <laughs> if you're yes. allowed to be that way you know one interesting thing that um i notice about the work that you do on advocacy and what you're wanting to talk about and what you get the most pushback on is beliefs and systems that enable abuse, yes. you know, and, and I just don't see how like we can, you know, pe people can push back on some of these things. And it's almost like you don't want to look because it'll threaten their faith or actually I would, I shouldn't say threaten their faith. It'll threaten their certainty. Yeah. I have no yes. problem with people's faith. I find myself wanting to hold on to faith so much. You know, I want right, to believe that too. there's something out there in everybody that is beautiful Absolutely. and divine that connects all mm -hmm. of us. Like, I want to believe that, you know, even that there's things in the Bible that we can take and it can help us. But there's also systems that have been, you know, in structures and justifications that shouldn't be there. And what you do a great job of pointing out is like, you always emulate, you try to emulate who you worship. Yes. And when someone is worshiping an abusive type God, then it's, you know, it, it's hard that that line gets super blurry, you know, and they, and they yeah. use it to justify certain abuse. I think Re Rebecca drums to, I don't know if you, you might've posted this uh, or the Vashti initiative did, but she defined spiritual abuse as using one's power or authority to control guilt, manipulate or coerce another with claims of biblical or spiritual truth. This includes psychological or emotional manipulation and coercion through the use of spirituality, which undermines or removes a person's autonomous spiritual empowerment and focuses on external spiritual performance. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. It really is. Um, it's, it is excellent. And I just would like to kind of expand on that a little yeah. bit in that a lot of these people that have these beliefs about what spiritual abuse is still believe in. Um, and I don't know if Rebecca does, but they still believe in the natural depravity of man yeah. and the reality of a literal hell. Mm. And those two things are the epitome of yeah. unloving, unholy, and unjust. 
they are abusive. It's basing your whole philosophy on shame and fear. Simply for existing, simply Mm. for existing. And when you really get down to the nitty gritty of the belief system of Christianity, that's even if people don't believe in the natural depravity of man, or they believe that hell is just separation from God forever, that's still not helpful. Mm. (laughs) It's still not, um, it's still abusive at its core because it's the idea that we're broken and that we need saving from a God who could have prevented it, Mm. but didn't, you know, and if he can prevent and protect people is innocent people from evil and human suffering and doesn't, that's just evil. And how do we know that? Because if we did that, we would be seen as of all people, most evil and despicable. (laughs) But if he, if he can't, but wants to, then that makes him inept and impotent and incompetent and not worthy of worship. Like what good is he, (laughs) you know, and people want to believe that he's so powerful that he could create the universe in all of its majesty, but he can't, or he won't protect innocence from being abused, Mm. you know, from humans, from suffering. And I realized, I just got to the point when I realized that, and, and everybody will say, oh, this is just arrogance and pride because who are you to say this? But um, I realized that if I were God and if I were sovereign and all powerful, not one child would be born to people that I knew would abort, abuse, neglect, sexually assault, traffic, or murder it. You know, not one bug would be created that carried Lyme disease. <laughs> not one baby would be born with bone, blood, and brain cancers to destined to die, to die horrific deaths within the four walls of a hospital after living horrific lives. You know what I mean? The agony of this is just beyond my comprehension. Um, And I really, it was just being a parent and having parents that were incredible that really nailed it all down for me. I wouldn't treat people that I didn't like the way that the God of Christianity allegedly treats people that he allegedly loves. Yeah. You know, let alone my loved ones. Um, I don't, I don't test them. I don't try them. <laughs> I don't set them up for failure. I don't put stumbling blocks in their way. I don't demand that they love and worship and praise and thank me and pray to me and grovel and submit their will to mine. You know, nothing about that is loving. And I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, like, I don't want to be like that God, because like you said, you become like the God that you worship. You're supposed to emulate them. We are supposed to be like God, even though apparently that's why Adam and Eve were cursed after they ate of the tree, because they were going to be like God when they were allegedly created in the image of God to begin with. So was it going to make them more like God? Like, you know, there's just so many questions. Well, now they're like us. So let's kick them out of the garden and put a angel with a flaming sword in front of it so they can't become even more like us yes and take away the option of the tree of life they were destined to die physically and spiritually anyway and they had the option of taking the tree of life but now that that they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good good they Mm -hmm. had no knowledge of good prior to this but now that they do take away the option of the tree of life and instead of freely forgiving them as the forgiving god that you are curse them and destine all of their posterity unjustly to suffering and torment on earth and eternal torment, allegedly in hell forever. 
Mm. You know, it's just like, you can't make it make sense. You cannot, you cannot extrapolate the abuse from the belief system, you know? And that's why I have a hard time with literalism so much, you know, Mm. like Mm. I'm an artist, I'm a writer. I love metaphor. I love poetry. uh, I love fiction. I can see so many beautiful things in the Bible if I look at it through a lens that's not literal. Like there's so many right. opportunities to do that. That's I think that's the biggest problem. Like I like I, that's one of the reasons why like I'm just done with fundamentalism. I'm done with the fundamentalist dialogue yeah. and all that stuff, but it's there. And where I live yeah. in the in the buckle of the Bible belt in Chattanooga, Tennessee, it's like there in every interaction. And it's very hard for yeah. me to feel A, understood, B, accepted, mm-hmm. and yeah. C, loved. Fortunately for me, I'm one of the lucky ones that with you, my family, it's almost like, hey, where he's at is where he's at, but we love him anyway. Yeah, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. been wonderful. And mm-hmm. their responses to me are so different from responses from people that don't know me as well. You know what I mean? In, In the spirit of trying to create a space where there's a better dialogue, between because your journey is where you end up. I don't think people choose belief. I, I don't think that no. it's a choice. Like it is some people can believe, some people cannot. Um yep. and our experiences have a lot to do with that. And mm-hmm. what do you think in this dialogue, in the spirit of making things better? And I know a lot of my listeners or just a lot of people that I know that are Christians, what responses to you have been the most useless and waste of time <laughs> <Useless>. hurtful. <laughs> I think it's okay. the only way I can put it. Like it's just like we yeah. can't even we can't even talk about this. What what would you say those responses are? Um invalidating, mm-hmm. uh accusatory, dehumanizing, mm. telling you that you're as as like you're a demon or you're possessed by satan or you're the voice piece of satan or you are satan himself. Um because I've gotten all of that. Um accusing you of having a rebellious spirit or the spirit Uh, of Jezebel. That's a thing. Um, You know, just all of these accusatory tone policing deflections instead of facing the issues head on and defending their beliefs and, and trying to explain how and why their beliefs are loving and how and why they're not abusive because they they can't do it because they can't do it and be honest. But instead of deflecting, defend it. And if you can't do that at the very least, if you believe, I have a lot of people come to me and say, I'm so sorry that you were hurt by people in the church and that you chose to blame, to blame God for what people mm. did to you. Those but weren't real Christians. God. Yeah. yeah. Those aren't real just Christians. Know that, right. Exactly. Just know that it wasn't God that hurt you. It, you know, it's like if if that were true and I was really hurt and harmed by people in the church, is this how you would comfort mm. somebody by telling them, oh, well, I'm sorry this happened to you, but don't blame God. <laughs> you know, is that what you do when people come to you in person and they yeah. say, oh, wow, I broke my arm. You know, they're not like, oh, well, don't blame God. You know, I'm sorry that somebody else hurt you. 
you know, you have a broken arm and you fell down. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't their fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. You fell down and you broke your arm, you know, or whatever, whatever happened, any kind of hurt and harm where it's, whether it's emotional, whether it's psychological, if somebody was, was raped, is this really how you would comfort them? Is this really what you would say? Oh, you know, God didn't do this. No, he didn't. If he exists, he allowed it to happen to me and did nothing to prevent it or protect me from it. And you're coming at me telling me how to feel about it and who to blame. You know, Mm, how is that helpful to the situation? No, (laughs) you would hopefully at least I can speak for myself. If, if an abuse victim comes to me, <laughs> I validate their feelings. I confirm them and tell them they're completely natural and normal and healthy. And I am genuinely so sorry that they had to experience this because if it were up to me, I wouldn't not have allowed that to happen to them. Yeah. You know, um, and I would say, what can I do? What can I do mm. to help you? And I would direct them to people who could, if I can't, you know, but what I wouldn't do would is say, Oh, you, you should forgive your rapist. You should not be angry mm-hmm. with your rapist and definitely don't be angry at God. Um, because you know, this is, this is just something because of free will that, that happened to you because God values the free will. No, as yeah. a victim, you're thinking, what about my free will? My my autonomy was taken, you know? Yes, I did not will to be raped or abused, you know? Mm -hmm. The only free will that God appears to honor is that of people with power over other people, Mm. to hurt and to harm. He doesn't give a flying flip about the victim or the survivor's will not to be victimized. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, what, what, what responses... I will say, like, I have a hard time when people lead with apologetics. You know oh, what I mean? Yes. Like when that's the lead, like you're going straight yeah. into trying to change my mind instead of just yeah. li- leading with listening. What responses to you? Um, I know you've probably had some great conversations as well. Re- what responses have been the most helpful? And how could Christians listening to this when someone comes to them and they're saying, I'm deconstructing or I think I've lost my faith? Like what responses do you think would be helpful? You know, because I'm I'm all about yeah. do no harm, you know, and I, this, yeah. this losing your community, this deconstruction, this is a hard thing to go through. It's, it it's is. destabilizing. It's very yeah. difficult. How could you, you know, help the Christians out there maybe respond better? Mm-hmm. What would you want to hear? What, what have you gotten that's been helpful? Well, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And a Mm. lot of Christians come at you in condescending, arrogant, superiority, and certainty. And that is the antithesis of faith. But um, the the antidote to that is to get curious. Instead of having Mm -hmm. certainty, get curious, ask questions. And I have had so many amazing, incredible people reach out to me and say, there has to be more to the story. Like, how yeah. did how did you believe for 33 years? How are you in full-time ministry? You obviously believe this so passionately that you made it your livelihood. Like, what could have possibly happened to make you walk away? That is 
we, oh my goodness, I can't tell you how many amazing Christian friends I have because of just that one question. Mm. Um, and then when they, when I share my story, they don't read it to correct me and show me how I'm wrong about God and about people and everything that happened to me. They're like, holy cow, <laughs> that yeah. was a lot. Yeah. And I don't blame you at all for walking away. You know, I have had difficult things in my life too, and I've chosen not to walk away, but I completely understand why you would, mm. you know? Yeah. Leading it's with curiosity and empathy. Yes. That's yeah. Beautiful. And, 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 and I've noticed too, that I've, I've gotten really good at like vetting people and seeing, figuring out who's worth my time kind of, cause I yeah. have so many people coming at me, but I ask questions. I ask them questions to get them thinking because your logical, rational, critical thinking brain is so shut down within these belief systems that require faith to believe them, which faith defined again is belief despite lack of evidence or proof. Um, so you can't use rationality, you can't use logic, but people insist that religion and the logic and rationality go hand in hand. But when you start asking them questions, they start to see really quick that yeah. they can't logically defend it. And so um, I've had a lot of people actually, more than I ever would have expected, who had come at me with the wrong heart and very brutally who have come back later and said, well, thank you for asking me those questions because it really, really did make me reevaluate my stance, you know, mm. on a lot of things. And you had a lot of truth to share that I honestly, I don't have the answer to, but thank you. I learned a lot from this interaction with you. And it's been, it's been rewarding to see people set free from these abusive belief systems, wherever deconstruction or deconversion <laughs> leads them to whether it's other belief systems or um, no belief at all, it doesn't matter. It, it, everybody has their own unique journey, like you said, and all of them are completely valid. And that's the beauty of having the freedom mm, to I believe love it. What, what we want to. Well, Sherry, I'm honored that you came on this podcast to share your story and, uh, I'm going to try to get it out there to as many people that it can help as possible. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking, but I also, there's so much love and hopefulness in your voice. And um, thank you for coming on. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.